go ahead and get started. Um, for those of you who weren't here last time, I substituted for Dr. Carey. My name's Miss Rayleigh. I'm a graduate student here in the political science department. I am also Dr. Carey's research assistant, hence the reason I am doing his classes for the time being. I'm also going to be teaching class on Wednesday, so hopefully y'all will bear with me for the next two days and we can make this as painless as possible. Um, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to be talking into my computer a little bit while we're doing this because Dr. Carey wants a recording of the class today and apparently when I tried to record last time my voice didn't really show up so there was no recording so I apologize. Um, so if I look like I'm speaking like this I apologize. Um, Alright so today we read Torture Terrorism and Interrogation by Richard Posner and also Loose Professionalism by Richard Weisberg. Any comments just off the top of your head? Anybody think anything particular? Pretty much, one side or the other. Yeah. Was anybody surprised that so many scholars would be so forcefully for or against torture? That seems like a commonplace argument. All right, fair enough. All right, so let's start off by talking about Posner a little bit. So this is obviously, what, what's the opinion on torture here? What's the overarching message he's trying to get across? I know y'all read it, you're turning to the right page. <laughs> Let me simplify, is he for or against? Does he think torture is okay or not okay? Pretty much exactly. So Posner starts off his article by posing three main questions to us. Thank you. And those three main questions are first off, what methods of interrogation should the word torture mean? So what, what types of interrogation are we talking about when we say torture? What does that mean? Thank you. His second question is, what criterion should we use to determine how coercive an interrogation should be allowed to be and whether or not that same interrogation should be deemed torture? So, so how bad should interrogation techniques be allowed to be? And then third, what should be the legal regime for the application of the criterion of particular interrogations? So should we bring this all inside the law, make some kind of law that covers torture? Should we leave it outside the law? Should we find a middle ground? What, what needs to be the legal parameters of this situation? So to start off with this first question, what, what methods of interrogation should torture connote? First of all, we have to establish what is torture. What does he say the problem is with definitions of torture that we have now? Anybody? That's his version of the definition that he feels there should be a line. But what he calls persuasive definitions are the ones that he says are what exists right now. Persuasive definitions, Posner tells us, are definitions that don't describe the word torture. They describe how the people who are defining the word want it to be used. So if I'm for torture, I'm going to define torture differently than someone who's against torture. So it's a persuasive definition. The point of the definition is to try and get someone to feel like you feel. So that doesn't really give us a good definition of the word torture. That gives us lots of different definitions from lots of different people who think lots of different ways. 
Most interrogation is coercive in some way. Whether you're questioning someone, just asking them simple questions could be coercive if that person is nervous or if you're giving them some kind of anxiety by the way you're asking, all the way up to physical harm, of course, is coercive. But what he's asking is where does that line fall where it becomes torture? And the way he describes it in the book is that it's the line between which an onlooker would become uneasy with coercive proceedings to becoming disgusted with torture proceedings. So that's not a very good technical definition. That, that leaves a lot of wiggle room because, of course, I'm going to interpret things different than you are and different than the next person is. So the problem is picking a point on a continuum of different interrogation techniques that equals torture. You find that one fine line that divides coercive from torture. Um, and the problem is finding that by some kind of universal standard, which, of course, different cultures, different countries, different militaries all see those lines as falling somewhere else. So there is no one universal definition of torture. So what he's asking us is, what, what do we think is worse? Do we think it's worse for someone to be questioned under bright lights? Do we think sleep deprivation is worse than that? Do we think threatening to beat someone up is worse? Uh, relay questioning, when you go from bad cop to good cop to bad cop, what, what seems the most intimidating to you? So what Posner suggests is that that line should fall between the physical and the, and the psychology. I can't talk today, sorry. Demar the demarcation comes between the inflicting of pain or touching and just other techniques that somehow intimidate the witness. So he suggests that if there's anything involved that is somehow physically harming, somehow physically embarrassing, um, things like that, should be considered torture, whereas things that are just psychological techniques should not really be considered torture. Any comments on that? Any opinions? So lots of people have different opinions on where that line needs to fall. Um, some examples that Posner gives us of what he feels are either torture on that fine line right in between or not torture. He says torture would be things like beating someone up, physical harm of some sort, things like waterboarding. Do we know what waterboarding is? Where they hold them down and pour water in their face. Um, shaking. He says although shaking might not hurt a person, it's physically touching, so it still falls under his definition of torture. He says things that are debatable are things like blindfolding. You have to touch someone to blindfold them, but is it really torture? He says it's arguable. Or manacling, which is the big iron handcuffs, big harsh handcuffs. Someone who isn't going to go anywhere, putting cuffs on them like that, could that be considered torture? If so, what does that say about our own police practices? And things that he considers coercive but not torture would be things like sleep deprivation, truth serum, an injection that is supposed to make you more likely to tell the truth. It doesn't force you to tell the truth. Bright lights, putting someone in a cold, dirty room, um, shouting threats, and lying to someone to try and trick them into telling the truth. So that's how Posner defines it. That those things to him are not torture.
Any agreeance, disagreeance? Everybody's totally cool with that. Go ahead. So where he calls the threat of violence just coercive, the threat of violence could indeed be torture if it was something that scared a person badly enough. Threat of violence is a good motivator. So, um, so the point is, for all your authors throughout this book, everybody's had a different version of what they consider torture to be. Um, Posner takes a little, it's a clear definition, at least he's being very categorical, he's saying physical versus mental. But there's a lot of stuff in that fine category in between. And there's a lot of different versions of what you can consider torture. Um, one argument that he gives for this is that according just to human nature, the change from psychological to physical makes the application of the word torture mandatory, in his opinion. So if it's something that's physically harming someone, he believes that the word torture has to be applied. Um, but that he does agree torture can be applied if it's not physical. He does concede that there are instances where it's psychological, but it's still considered torture. So why does he argue for this line between the physical and the psychological? Does anybody remember some of the reasons he gives? So physical effects can have a lasting psychological effect even if there was no psychological torture inflicted. Um, Posner bases his article mainly on the trends of the modern world. Um, he quotes Nietzsche. I'm not going to quote it exactly because I don't remember the quote. Um, but basically something that has occurred throughout history is a move toward making a person's body an inviolable object. It's a trend that we've seen in capital punishment, a trend we've seen in the reflection of punishments for certain laws. Um, for example, we don't use flogging as a capital punishment anymore. That used to be common practice here in Great Britain, in Australia, in lots of places. Um, there's also moves to abolish capital punishment altogether. That would have been unheard of in the 17th century. Um, there are a great many of the capital punishments we use have been moved toward the painless category, lethal injection, um, things like that. You know, you don't really hear about a whole lot of death by firing squad anymore. It's more the lethal, lethal injection gas chamber type route. Um, there's also been a trend to bar the use of violence to protect po property rights. You don't see a whole lot of violent protests anymore. Th things like that have just gradually gone out of practice. And so he bases his argument on just the trends of the modern world. So he notes a big problem with his definition of torture and defining torture in general, which is the Fifth Amendment. Does anybody know what the Fifth Amendment says? Or kind of basically, you don't have to quote it exactly. Exactly, the self-incrimination amendment. 
The Fifth Amendment states that no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against themselves. So where does that leave us in the problem of torture? Basically so. In, in the United States, if someone during questioning wants to quote-unquote plead the fifth, that's it. It's done. No more questioning. Moving on to getting a lawyer. Um, however, of course, in foreign military situations and in other countries, that's not always the case. So, of course, torture is still a relevant issue many places around the world, but the Fifth Amendment, to some extent, does prevent things like that directly in the United States. Um, now, I'm not saying that that has anything to do with foreign military operations because we all know that that's probably not the reality of the world. Um, but Posner's problem specifically with the Fifth Amendment is the word witness. What does witness imply to you? Who, who is a witness? What, where does a witness witness? But where would you hear a witness speaking out most often? In court, exactly. So Posner's argument is that you can kind of sort of get around the Fifth Amendment if you define the Fifth Amendment to mean that a witness is a witness in a court of law, not someone who makes an ex parte statement in an interrogation. So that's a little bit of a loose definition. We'll get into loose professionalism in a few minutes with, um, with Weisberg, but that's something that's been widely criticized and widely approved of in our Constitution is the room in amendments to kind of wiggle around. It's how they were written, and so there is room for interpretation. So then the question becomes, if you can't get a solid definition of torture, and if you have these ways to wiggle around possibly using torture, possibly not, what level of coercion or torture should the Constitution allow? Or should it allow any? This is a very heavily debated point between scholars, as you've seen in this book. But Posner suggests that any means necessary should be employed to obtain key information, but he wants that based on a cost-benefit analysis. So he feels that torture should always be on the table if the benefit of torturing one person and all the psychological effects that go along with that, the repercussions to the society that engages in that behavior, if that outweighs what would have happened if we hadn't tortured that person. So he gives us some example situations. There's the large-scale benefit. There's the situation where we have captured a, um, a confederate in a plan to unleash some kind of biological weapon on Manhattan. So we know that there are literally thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives at risk. Do we torture that person to get the information, or do we not? It's a cost-benefit analysis, according to Posner. Granted, there are people who argue both extremes. There are people who argue that torture is always okay, it's never okay, it's okay in certain situations, it runs the whole spectrum. But what he's saying is it's a simple adding game. Either it's worth it or it's not. So then there's the small-scale benefit the kidnapping of a child. He gives us the example in his book of a child that's been kidnapped and somehow confined in a room that the air supply is going to run out. The kidnapper is the only one who knows where the child is and is not telling anyone. Do you torture him or do you not? In that case, you're dealing with a more obvious cost-benefit analysis rather than one life for thousands of lives. 
you're dealing with a life for a life. So which is more important? These are all very deep philosophical questions that we could get into, but Posner's argument is, again, in this case, he thinks torture is okay. Then he gives us the example of something that would not be enough benefit. A police officer arrests a drug dealer to find out all the people he's been dealing drugs to. Do they torture the drug dealer, or do they just arrest him and let it go at that? That's a case where he's giving us the example that he doesn't feel the benefit outweighs the cost of torture. So you've got the whole scale all the way from the deaths of thousands of innocents to one drug dealer pulled off the street. Granted, this is just one person's opinion. I know everybody in this room has probably very different opinions on how torture goes and how or what is acceptable, but that's just his version of it. So Posner knows that saying all these things are very controversial. He knows that he's going to get arguments, especially from civil libertarians. He anticipates three different arguments, and he gives us his counter-arguments for those. The first argument is the obvious one. There are people that say torture is always wrong. It's never acceptable. It's always a bad thing. It always implies that the society that's doing it is not capable of handling anything by other means. So Posner's argue for this, argument for this one is the classic. It's the lesser of two evils. Either you torture the person or thousands of people die. So he just goes back to his same example of the large-scale benefit to torture, which is if the information is reliable, and then the torture must be worth it. The next argument he anticipates is that torture is ineffectual. You torture someone, of course, they're going to say something. They, they might lie to give you an answer you want to hear. They might still refuse to say anything at all. It might be no point because the person you're torturing might not know the answer to what you're trying to get at. Um, so there are a million different reasons to argue that torture is ineffectual. There's also a wide historical support for the argument that torture is ineffectual, i.e. the Spanish Inquisition. Thousands of innocents tortured under claims of witchcraft and all sorts of other nonsense. And of course, when tortured back then, we meant a little bit more harsh methods than we're talking about today. Things like the Iron Maiden. Anybody ever heard of that? Not to get gruesome. A little casket full of spikes that they'd lock you in until you decided you wanted to share whatever information you had. Um, there was also something called the Iron Boot. They'd put a cast iron boot around your leg and heat it up put your leg on a fire until you felt like you needed to share some information. And there are also methods that are still held today, things like pulling off fingernails or breaking fingers or things like that. You know, I, I'd, I'd love to say that stuff doesn't go on, but it does, of course. Um, but those are practices that go back centuries. And historically, they've proven that a lot of people confess to things they didn't actually do. So Posner's argument here is a little less academic. Um, it's simply that if torture was so ineffectual, why would people still do it? I find that to be a little less scholarly than some of his other points, but that's okay. He says also that if torture was so ineffectual, it wouldn't pass any kind of cost-benefit analysis. So if you were to break down a torture situation, you wouldn't be able to logic out a reason to do it because the benefit would never outweigh the cost of actually torturing a person. And he does note, he does give a little sidebar that there is the risk of torture with ulterior motives, like torturing someone to elicit a false confession. If 
you just want that person to incriminate themselves somehow. You don't care if it's the truth. Um, intimidation of a particular culture, minority, things like that. It's been practiced in many countries where minorities have been prosecuted that the torture of one small group of people can serve to intimidate that entire religious group, that entire ethnic group, whatever the government or military's purpose is there. Um, there's also just simple old sadism. People who want to torture because that's what they want to do. Um, and although he notes that those are all valid arguments and all things that really could happen, he says that they happen so little that the argument for torture still applies. He doesn't believe that it's ineffectual. And then there's a big argument that the recourse to torture is so degrading to a society that it should never be used even if the death of many innocents is the absolute outcome of not using torture. So even if you know that this person knows the location of a bomb that's going to kill thousands of people, it would put your society so far back on the evolutionary scale that it's something you should never, ever, ever engage in under any circumstance. His argument here, we go back a little bit into academia, and he gives us some examples of countries that have engaged in torture that by modern standards we probably would not consider to be some kind of barbaric nation. So France engaged in torture in Algeria. The United Kingdom very recently engaged in torture against the Irish Republican Army. That's in very recent history. And Israel, um, combating against the Intifada, has engaged in torture practices. But yet, by no standards that the international community values are these nations considered barbaric nations. Um, things like Human Rights Watch, um, Amnesty International, organizations like that do not consider those countries to be at the bottom of their list by any means. Go ahead. I, I would consider that action in itself barbaric. I mean, just as a country, because they haven't, you know, devolved into some horrible state by then, that's not, I think, that kind of would make them a horrible state, but especially if you are in the IRA or something. Well, and that's, that's another twist argument of this, is that in the eyes of some people, it does make these nations barbaric, but by, you know, just generic standards like any kind of measure that we have or any kind of human rights organization, they haven't lowered their ratings of any of these countries as a result of anything they've done. By the same... They concentrate on larger scale things, like the massacres in Sudan or the uh, massacres in Rwanda or things like that. Those, those nations are more the nations you're going to find on the bottom of the list. Um, or things like massive human rights violations, like you would find in China, the, the one-child law, um, massive infanticide, things like that, bump your score down. A couple cases of torture, sad to say, no, they don't bump your score down very much. These are large, large-scale organizations, and when they're grading you on a scale of one to nine, a couple hundred here and there don't really make a difference when your population is billions of people. And, and that's a sad reality. We don't have any monitoring systems in the international community that are capable of looking at such small-scale violations. So yes, barbaric though they may be, there's just nothing to capture all that. You see what I mean? There's nothing that the international community has provided enough money or people or monitoring for that could actually look out for things that small. So yes, it, maybe a barbaric practice and it may reflect badly on that country there's just nothing to show us that as of yet but there may be someday 
these things didn't exist a couple decades ago. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, things like that didn't exist. So you never know. Um, so all this leads to Posner's final question, the legalization of torture. Should torture be brought within the wall of the law or not? And you already gave us the answer to this. What does he say? Right, exactly. So torture, according to Posner, is still something that should give us enough mental pause that it should not be something easily resorted to. And his argument for that is to leave it outside the law, to make it so that people engaging in it would have to actually break the law to do it, so that not only, one, there's mental pause of, I, I have to break the law to do this, I shouldn't do this, and two, there's legal recourse, should that action ever be taken unnecessarily. Uh, however, he does argue that the war on terrorism will demand much more coercive methods than maybe we've ever employed in, I can't say in the past, but in recent history. So he does argue that he feels some methods will become more acceptable, although they'll still remain outside the law. Now, he gives us a couple examples of people who agree and disagree in this category. He quotes a, a guy named Alan Dershowitz. And Alan Dershowitz wrote a work on torture that basically says as long as the stakes are high enough, torture is permissible. And Dershowitz goes so far as to give us his favorite method of torture. Does anybody remember from the article what that was? He's, he's a little gruesome about it. Exactly. Driving needles under people's fingernails. So Posner at least admits that he finds that a little odd and disgusting that another scholar would quote a favorite type of torture. But he does essentially agree with Dershowitz in that it's a cost-benefit analysis. If the stakes are high enough, torture should be allowed. Um, he does give us a couple examples of times that torture has been allowed. Even though it existed outside the law, the people who did it got away with it because the reward was so great. One of the examples he gives us is there was a police officer who choked a kidnapper during interrogation until the kidnapper told where his victim was. The police officer was exonerated in the court of law because of the cost-benefit analysis. The court felt that the reward for getting that child back was so great that the choking should be excused. So that's a time that's existed outside the law in this own country. In another country, in the Philippines, Philippine authorities tortured a terrorist they felt was involved in a plot to assassinate the Pope and also found that that same um, terrorist was involved in a plot to hijack 11 commercial airliners and crash land them at various places around the globe. So hypothetically, assuming that that information had panned out to be true, they saved hundreds of thousands of lives by torture. But again, that's one side of the argument. Now, what Dershowitz suggests that Posner doesn't exactly agree with is that there should be a warrant obtained to torture people, that that should be how we bring it within the law. Just like there's a warrant to search houses, a warrant to seize property, there should be a warrant to pursue extreme inter interrogative means, is how he puts it, such as physical torture. Can anybody foresee a problem with that? He gives us a couple problems in the article. It's a problem with getting a warrant. Takes time. Takes time, yep. 
Exactly. So you're kind of, it's kind of a catch-22. You want to torture to get the evidence, but you need the evidence to get the warrant. So kind of counterproductive. There's also the simple argument that Posner makes that when you're going for a warrant, the procedure in our country is such that police officers have a choice of who to go to. They can go to a judge that's a friend or that they know is sympathetic to a certain type of case. So what Posner feels the problem with Dershowitz's argument is that there will become judges that are sympathetic to harsher interrogation techniques and that police officers when pursuing these warrants or military officers when pursuing these warrants will know who to go to to always get a torture warrant, so to speak. So that becomes a problem because that still doesn't provide any review of the process that doesn't provide us with any limitations. Um, so basically, warrants are too easy to get, is his problem. Um, and Posner also argues that if torture were to be legalized for certain situations, the limits of those laws would be tested because we see cases of people who, we, we have legal limits on certain things, but court cases exist to test those limits, to push those boundaries as far as they can. So he also cites another problem would be that if we legalize some form of torture, then someone will test to see if this next form of torture is okay and going up the scale and up the scale and up the scale until finally physical violence is a commonplace torture technique or interroga interrogation technique. So basically, as we said, he said it's better to leave the law alone and to understand that the, certain, that the current boundaries of the law will be ignored in certain circumstances. And he gives us one very classic example that everybody has probably heard of before. What does he say? What famous person once suspended a very important law in the U.S.? Exactly. President Lincoln at the beginning of the Civil War suspended habeas corpus, which of course is constitutionally protected, so that's a big deal. Um, however, President Lincoln was never brought to court over that, was never in any way prosecuted over that, so that kind of sets the precedent that in certain very extreme circumstances, some laws will be ignored. Um, he also argues that there's a chance that a law to protect the practice of torture could be deemed constitutional, providing that confessions that were gotten during torture proceedings were not admissible in court. So he foresees a future where people do attempt to make torture legal, providing that the information gotten in a torture session is used only to, say, save lives, not to get information to be used against that same person when they go to court for whatever happened. Um, but his problem with this type of legalization is that this is kind of a slippery slope. Once some torture techniques are approved, then others might be approved, and others and others and others, until we're back where we started with torture being totally okay in every form. So overall, Posner's article is better to keep the strict rules, knowing that people in authority will break them if the situation is serious enough and if they feel that the rewards will be great enough to protect them from the consequences. Any comments? Thoughts? Agree? Disagree? Think he's full of it? That's true. 
does tend, tend to be a common theme here. And it does seem like your book picked a lot more articles that support it than don't. Any other comments? Very quiet group today. Okay, we'll move on to Weisberg then. So Weisberg takes a different approach, obviously. And Weisberg's article is Loose Professionalism or Why Lawyers Take the Lead on Torture. So what's Weisberg's overall view? Does he agree with Posner? See it differently? Yes, he's the opposite. He does not agree with torture. He is on the extreme opposite end of the spectrum in that torture is not okay in any circumstance. And he starts off by saying that there are professional consequences that particularly lawyers and law professors ought to realize in the rationalization of things like torture. So he gives us the slippery slope argument, similar to what Posner admitted at the end of his article, that once we start on a trend to any kind of torture, psychological or physical, it will just descend into being a commonplace practice. But he calls this something different. He calls the moderation between not allowing torture and then professionals working within the law to somehow make torture okay, he calls that loose professionalism. And he's directing that term at lawyers and law professors. So he's saying that people who work to make torture somehow work within the scope of the law, that's bordering on not professional. So he uses a classic example of not torture, but racism. And what example does he use? Anybody know? Part of the Holocaust, yeah. He uses Vichy France during World War II. When France was occupied in 1940 by German forces, um, there was a new government based instead of in Paris in Vichy, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that right, but it's V-I-C-H-Y. Um, and this government, immediately upon being founded, started making aggressive anti-Semitic legislation, anti-Jewish legislation. Oddly, this legislation was not necessarily enforced by the Nazis. It was something this new French government just volunteered to do. They said, well, we know this is where the trend is going, so we're just going to go ahead and jump the gun, make these new laws that prevent Jews from doing this and doing that and having this kind of job and holding this kind of property and we're just going to go ahead and do that because we know that's where Nazi Germany is heading and we want to show our support. Well, there was one person in France who very strongly spoke out against this. He was a law professor named Jacques Maury. And Maury spoke out against these new laws in public forums. He published law reviews that spoke out against the new laws. His problem being that France had a long-standing egalitarian tradition as a country. They had always been very welcoming. They had always been very tolerant of other religions, other creeds, other ethnic groups. So for a new government to simply come in and void all that hard work that France had put in over the last 150 years was an affront to his version of what he thought France should be. So back then, speaking out is not what it is now. Freedom of speech is not what it is now. 
So he did put himself at great professional and even personal risk by being that forceful and standing up and saying something about that. He hoped that this would set an example to other lawyers in France to support him. The problem being, it didn't. No one really backed him up, and other lawyers began the trend to what the author calls loose professionalism. They started not speaking out against the laws, but saying, okay, if we're going to put laws like that into place, let's work within the law to try and manage them, to try and minimize the damage. We realize that these laws are going to be put into place and we can't do anything about it, so we're just going to work the system as best we can. So after a few years of fighting and speaking out and not getting support, Maury backed down and reversed himself into that loose professionalism category and started himself trying to work within the cases and try to prevent individual problems, but on the grand scale they were allowing these laws to be put into place. So by 1942 and 1943, there were massive deport deportations of the Jewish from France, and over 200 different individual laws had been put into place that were somehow anti-Semitic. So why would you think more lawyers wouldn't stand up with Maury? Why, why wouldn't more people speak out against this if it was so against everything France stood for? In the middle of World War II, what would be the, what would be the scenario? Why, why would people not want to speak out against this? Okay, that's a good reason, fear of the Nazi regime. Would there be another reason that people would just let anti-Semitic laws go into place and not say anything, maybe something pre-existing in the country? What if there was already racism there, just no one spoke on it? What if there were already anti-Semitic movements in France that had found their opportunity? Well, those are two arguments that Weisberg gives as to why it would have been understandable had people not spoken out. However, he gives us the counter-argument to both of those. He says it wasn't fear of the Nazis and it also wasn't a reflection of racism that existed in France. Nazi Germany, for a large part, Weisberg argues, left France, France's government alone. They didn't enforce any laws. They didn't put any of these legal traditions into place. They didn't threaten any proceedings. They didn't stop any court cases. Basically, their governance was untouched. So Weisberg argues that he doesn't understand why there would be fear of the Nazis because, for the most part, they didn't bother them. Um, there's also the argument for anti-Semitism, but there was also a huge portion of law professors and lawyers who went out of their way to protest anti-Semitism before these laws existed that kind of shut up when the laws came into place. His argument is simply that people preferred to go with the flow rather than stand up against the new regime because they found it easier to maneuver within the system than fight against the system. It was just the easier path to take, the path of least resistance. Personally, I still find merit in the argument of fearing the Nazis or some other rationale, but that's just my take on it. So overall, Weisberg's argument is rationalization is preferred to confrontation. People would rather just rationalize and move on than they would actually stand up for anything specific. So obviously, he's drawing this comparison into what current debate? What are we talking about now? Exactly. 
he's comparing the rationalization to confrontation argument to torture. People would rather rationalize torture, find a way to deal with it, find a way to work it within the system, than they would stand up against it. So Weisberg feels a little more harshly toward the people who would argue for torture than he does to the racism that was practiced in Vichy, France. He says that the, this modern-day case of torture surpasses the racism case in three different ways. First off, he says that people who speak against torture today are not under the same kind of professional or personal danger that were faced by people like Maury, who would stand up and speak for their rights. So if a lawyer wants to write a paper today speaking against torture, does that mean they're going to be kicked out of their law office? Most likely not. Does it mean they're going to be disbarred? Certainly not. But back then, that wasn't the case, but yet Maurice still had the courage to stand up for what he thought was right. So Weisberg finds it a little more insulting that lawyers today won't stand up for what they believe in since there aren't the same repercussions for facing the issue head on. Second, back in Nazi Germany and in the Nazi occupation of France, racist practices were pretty much a guarantee. Anywhere where there was Nazi occupation, you could pretty much be assured that some sort of anti-Semitic policy would be practiced. We don't have that same assurance today. We don't know that torture is an absolute. There is nothing, no kind of precedent or no kind of law or tradition that shows us that torture has to be practiced. There's also no kind of governing body that is enforcing torture on us. So his argument there is that by practicing torture, America is setting a very bad example for other countries and possibly even making the practice more widespread. In countries where it wouldn't have existed, they might see America do it and then say, oh, well, if they do it, it's okay then. That's the norm. That's the cultural accepted example. Um, then third, Weisberg said that we have the advantage of learning from history rather than having to live it. We've already seen the examples of what has happened from torture in the past. We've already seen examples of what's happened from racism in the past, and for the most part, civilized countries have learned from that. However, many civilized countries still practice torture to some degree, despite the lessons of different governments throughout history. So Weisberg's basic summary to this argument is that we should avoid loose professionalism by engaging in the argument head-on. Now, of course, by engaging in the argument head-on, Weisberg does mean that we should be against torture in all cases. He does not mean that we should have a dialogue between the two sides. He thinks lawyers should all stand up uni united against torture. Now, he does give a couple counter-arguments because, like Posner, he anticipates that people are going to have a problem with his argument. And he says he doesn't believe that just because he thinks everybody should stand up and say no to torture, that there shouldn't be a discussion on torture. He just believes that there ought to be a place and an opportunity for those who want to say no to stand up and have a conversation with those who want to say yes. He also says that he doesn't believe all who rationalize torture actually favor torture. He just thinks that rationalization is easier so all these people that are arguing for torture, he doesn't feel that they all support torture. He feels that they're all taking the path of least resistance. 
any thoughts? Anybody point out some flaws in either argument for me, Posner or Weisberg? They both have plenty. Go ahead. Well, in America, as long as I'm speaking out against um, torture, I think that I think a lot of Americans are doing or kind of cracking down. It just seems like it's come up a lot of against that rhetoric over the last you know thirty, forty years. You know, same thing for other people as well. You know, they smash buildings or they throw down our buildings and they torture them. Because, you know, that's true. There's a lot of inflammatory stances in America that go either one way or the other. So no matter which side you're on, you're probably going to face a pretty powerful backlash. So that's not to say that, although Weisberg argues that there's a free forum for everybody who wants to stand up against torture, that's not to say that there aren't some repercussions to saying what you believe in. Of course, there always are. That's the price of free speech. So what about Posner? Are there any arguments in the balancing cost-benefit? does set a precedent. So the problem there is, what if this time you're 75% sure the person you're torturing is going to tell you something valuable, but next time you're only 50% sure? So does that still make it okay, or is that over some kind of line? I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty gray analysis, not to mention the fact that this analysis would be done by thousands of different military personnel, police officers, politicians all over the country so who's to say that one person's version of torture doesn't equal someone else's version of just light questioning you know there's a very wide range to this so that's a pretty loose argument um, and there's also sorry I had a thought while you were talking but I forgot what it was never mind any other thoughts about Posner's article specifically? I think he kind of opens him up, himself up to a lot of stuff. Yeah, and what about that the consequential analysis? I mean, with the, with the ticking bomb scenario, I mean, people kind of say, well, that guy's life probably isn't worth hundreds of thousands of lives if he's if they're pretty likely that he's guilty of, of you know, having a bomb. But like with the with the situation with the uh, kidnappers, you say, I mean, that's like a life to a life. I mean, just because the guy says that he. Kidnappers, so it doesn't mean he has to go to jail. 
I mean, you're kind of already, you're kind of, I guess, you're kind of already assuming that he's guilty of it and torturing him for it because we don't know the specifics around it. We don't know that he actually did it. We have to see what he would do in Kentucky with that. Right. Posner suggests this fabulous, very easily understandable argument of cost-benefit, which should be this doesn't equal this, therefore we do this. But the reality is a lot less easy to interpret because, of course, there's always the chance that the person you're interrogating is lying, plain and simple. If you're, if you're, if you're uh, balancing or if you're adding up a life for a life, I mean, I mean, the justice system seems to make, you know, a few, um, maybe a few mistakes. Like, uh, what's the, like, what is race play into it? I mean, it's a, it's a black life versus a white life. It doesn't seem like there's any clear tie. Right. I mean. Well, there, and there's all sorts of opinions that could go into some kind of cost-benefit analysis, like, what if the person doing the cost-benefit analysis is racist? Or what if the person doing the cost-benefit analysis is somehow biased against whoever they're interrogating for whatever reason? That's an excellent point. So could anybody offer me a different version of torture? Can anybody offer me a better definition? If psychological between, between psychological and physical doesn't get it, do we have a good definition? don't think that's it. <laughs> Anybody want to take a shot at it? There's no right or wrong answer. We don't have anything right now. Has to be slow. Okay. Anybody else? What do you think torture, for it to have to be torture? Because Posner says, some things could be torture, might be torture, might not be torture, but physical, it has to be called torture. What, what's your version of that? Do you agree? If it's physical, it has to be called torture? That is a very easy definition. That's a very black and white in a very gray situation. If we had an easy. That's true. There are also different different definitions of what is physical pain or discomfort, or he even uses the word physical humiliation. That's kind of a wide ranging version of things because he describes blindfolding as being physically humiliating. I gotta say, if I was arrested, I wouldn't be that surprised to be blindfolded. That, but that's my personal take on it, you know. And my personal take on it might be completely different than your personal take on it. So torture has to be for a specific means rather than just for the sake of torture. Okay, I think that's a step into a scope of torture that might be a little bit more of a reasonable definition. So torture for the sake of torture would be something that falls outside of this. That's sadism. That's something different. Uh, but torture for the sake of extracting certain information is the realm of what we're talking about here. Anything else? 
So would everybody agree with me saying that there really is no universally accepted definition of torture, nor does it seem likely that we're going to come to one? It seems like this is a little bit too of a nebulous thing. This is something that not only do different cultures in different countries see differently, but inside our own country we see very differently. So if one country or even one class can't come to a definition, this is going to be a pretty wide-ranging debate, and it's going to go on for a long time. So please keep in mind that this book is just a very small sampling of the different arguments out there and that they range all the way from the most extreme no to the most extreme yes. There are people who would torture for anything, everything. Someone burnt down your rose bush, so let's torture them and find out why they did it. Or there are people that would say that if you knew for a fact that someone had the code to a nuclear bomb and was about to set it off on your city, torture is still not an acceptable option because of the repercussions to your society. So that's the range of it. We've just got to pick for ourselves where we stand on that range. Okay, that's all I've got. We're going to talk more about common law on Wednesday, so don't forget to read, is it chapter 9?